our church, just by way of introduction as the kids are uh, going, a reminder, uh, is working through a long series uh, through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134 in the Old Testament Psalter, which is just a song book. Psalm just means song. And so this is what people sang in their life, the, sing, the songs they sang at home and in prayer and in church, if you will, together as they came together in the assembly of the saints. And these particular psalms are ones that were given to them as they made pilgrimage from their homes up to Jerusalem in the mountains for the great feasts at least three times a year. And they would sing these psalms as they ascended up into the mountain. And so what we've been doing is looking at these songs as the playlist, the playlist for a road trip, if you will, the playlist for what we're calling pilgrimage. And we've been arguing that the idea of pilgrimage is the best way for you to understand what your life is about. That it's not just arbitrary, it's not just what you can make of it, but instead you are called to be on a journey where you're moving daily toward a sacred destination. And that everything that happens to you on the way is a part of what makes and unmakes and remakes you so that you're prepared as you arrive at this sacred destination. And that sacred destination, of course, is God himself, but it's also his new creation it's his fullness of his shalom as God and human beings and all of creation works harmoniously and lovingly together. And so we find ourselves this morning with this song, 123, on the playlist for pilgrimage. Let me read it to you, and then we'll pause for a quick prayer and consider it for a few moments together. Psalm 123. To you, I lift up my eyes. O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O oh Lord. Have mercy upon us. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And this is the word of the Lord. God, would you please now add the power of your spirit, not only to the reading of this word, but to its interpretation, to its hearing, that each listener here might invite you to speak a fresh word to them this morning for what they need in their next step on the journey today and this week. Speak to them. That's why we're here. Speak to each person. Use this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start by giving you a free and good icebreaker. Uh, let me encourage you, if you want to, after the service, you go back there to get bagels and coffee. You're sitting here talking to someone. You can try using these icebreakers. Maybe you get out of your normal routines and patterns of conversation. So here's a good icebreaker. It's simple. Ask someone, what's your first job and your worst job? I bet you'll get some good stories. First job and worst job. My first real job that I was paid for and, you know, had to fill out one of those things for the IRS and all that stuff was in a restaurant in a suburban mall outside of Dallas, Texas, called China Coast. And if you know the General Mills Corporation, these are the people who thought it would be great to make a national chain of seafood restaurants, and so they made Red Lobster, and they thought it would be great to make a national chain of uh, Italian restaurants 
called the Olive Garden. And then they thought it would be nice to make a national chain of Chinese restaurants, Chinese food, uh, quote-unquote Chinese food, American Chinese food. And so this was their uh, foray into making a national chain, which, by the way, never worked because you've never heard of China Coast. Uh, but they opened too many too quick, and I was at one of them. And I went there, and it was, it was bad. You know, it was a little bit sort of like uh, not a great experience to be a, a, a young white suburban kid dressed in a sort of faux Asian frock. I mean, you know, it was the whole thing. It was like theater, kind of distasteful, all that. Uh, but what was worse is like they had this system, this tiered system. It wasn't just like there was uh, the hostess and then the waiters and maybe a busboy. It was like another thing called the waiter's assistant, which was like worse than a busboy. It actually meant that I did all the stuff the waiters did, but the waiters were doing something else. I didn't really understand. I was the lowest on the totem pole, you know, uh, at the bottom of the ladder, if you will. And I realized how dependent I was for my satisfaction and for my ability to hear if I was doing a good job or to know if I was doing a good job was entirely dependent upon the character and the treatment and either the blessing or the curse of those that I was serving, Right? Every guest at every table, there was always the big shot dad that was taking his kids out and wanted to belittle you in front of the whole family to show what kind of power he had. You never met a person like that? Or someone else who was extra nice, even though you were like, my waiter didn't do a good job, let me help you out. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. And you were just always waiting to see. It was dependent on how people received you. And even worse, your job depended on bosses, right? And in this case, it might be a middle management, but actually there were bosses somewhere Behind the General Mills Corporation, they were passing down pronouncements and things would change left and right, because, especially because it was kind of a startup. They would arbitrarily change things and all of a sudden you had a whole new process, a whole new way to be assessed and all sorts of things. And what I learned from this job and from a lot of jobs I've had since then, and maybe many of the jobs in this kind of economy that we live in, is that so many of them are kind of dehumanizing. They often can feel very arbitrary. You know, I could please the paying customers to my best ability, but to please my actual bosses? Well, who were they? I have no idea. What it seemed that they cared about was minimal costs, efficiency, eliminating redundancies, and increasing shareholder profits somewhere. I didn't know how I was helping with that or whether or not I was doing a good job at all. If you've ever had this experience, you have it today in your life, you learn perhaps one of two things, you can hustle and work hard and just embrace the arbitrariness of it and this ladder they've put up in front of you and you can hustle and do the best you can to climb the ladder but to avoid the chute will send you back down like chutes and ladders to the bottom, right? Or maybe after a while you're like, man, this is ridiculous. I'm not gonna break my back for this silly job and so I'm gonna do the bare minimum and cash that check and you know, find my pleasure or my purpose somewhere else. And this is one of our problems with our relationship to our work and to our life's purpose, which work is one piece sometimes, is that often our experience of it is that it's arbitrary, what we do, our work, the purpose of our life. You might also ask, what was the worst job you ever had? And I've told some of you this before, but I thought my worst job might have been when I was a grown man, uh, near 30 years old, with uh, with kids on the way, and I found myself working again in the suburbs, but in a suburban mall this time outside of St. Louis, in the foyer, running a human water massage machine that people would come after shopping at Neiman Marcus and climb into this tanning bed-looking thing, and I would, like, run this big car wash thing over them, even though they had all their clothes on. It was just a weird little situation, and that was 
that was not a great job. I was really embarrassed to be doing that and learning Greek and Hebrew while I was sitting there running this water massage machine. But it probably wasn't the worst one I ever had. I was thinking about the worst one I actually had was probably uh, off the books. And I was working for a renegade contractor in high school who was building a house from scratch. Uh, This was for one June that I worked for him on a baking tract of land somewhere in North Texas. And he would give us 10-minute lunch breaks only. And then he would send me scrambling up to the top of where uh, the roof was going to be with only bare minimum scaffolding and no safety uh, measures, carrying nail guns and all sorts of things to take the joints uh, of of the cross beams and put them together and join them up there at the top. And that was terrifying. But what was even more terrifying is when I would come down and he didn't like the passion with which I would hammer. And so he would scream at me over and over again, don't pick at that nail, boy, swing that hammer, swing that hammer. And tell you what, I was terrified, terrified of that guy. And this is another way that we can experience relationship to our work and to our life's purpose is that it can feel ambiguous. We're in their favor. We're not in their favor any moment. We're not sure. It can feel really insecure. Depends on the whims of someone else or of the world or of the market. This arbitrary rule. And we can not understand what the meaning and purpose of it is when work and, by extension, our life's work is arbitrary or ambiguous and insecure. And this is why, I think this is the problem here I want to explore together. This is why most of us would most of the time, prefer to be served than to serve. We'd prefer to be at the top of the ladder. In the case of my worst job, to be at the bottom yelling orders to someone else at the top of the house. We would prefer to be served than to serve. And I know this even just anecdotally. We have a mercy fund where we can give money away, and people love to give to it, but very few people come to ask for it in times of need. Why? We would preserve to be served and to serve. What I mean is we don't like the vulnerability. We don't like the open-handedness that it requires of us, the humility, the need. We'd rather be served than to serve. To serve requires you to be vulnerable, open-handed, humble, serving the needs of others. I mean, consider the American narrative of the self-made person. It's all about somebody who had nothing and took nothing and turned it into something and got rich and powerful and famous all from it, right? I just came across this, I think it was a History Channel thing originally called The Men Who Built America. Of course, it's all men, right? The Men Who Built America. It's got episodes on J.P. Morgan and Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and Carnegie and then they came up with the frontier season, and it's got all the people, Lewis and Clark and Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and all these people that went out west. You know, it's probably why the most popular verse in the Bible, the most American verse, the most popular verse in America, you guys know it. It's that verse that says, God helps those who help themselves. You remember that one? It's in First Hesitations, which is to say it's not in the Bible at all. It's not a scriptural verse, but so many people think that it is. In fact, what scripture says over and over again is not that God helps those who help themselves, but God helps those who are helpless. Furthermore, that we are all helpless and we are in need of God's help. And he takes orphans and widows and aliens and puts them on the same level. He makes them all. 
followers on pilgrimage, yes, but also fellow servants of God. Fellow servants of God. This is part of what they're doing as they go up to the temple. They're traveling together, and they say, we look up to see what our God's doing up there, and we can't wait to get there and serve him together at the temple, and by extension to serve the nations, which we'll see in a moment. Psalm 123 teaches us to view our role on our journey of life, our calling. We've been called towards a sacred destination. Our vocation, that's what calling means. At work, at play, in prayer, in money, management, as children, as parents, as friends, as neighbors, as citizens. That is to say, now we're transitioning a little bit, not just thinking just about your job or just your work, but your vocation as a human being. We are in all things and in all tasks to understand ourselves as servants of God. Servants. Hear it again to you, I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master and what they're doing, they're like, oh, can I help? Can I jump into that? Oh, as, a, as the, hands of a, uh, the, the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of her mistress, they look like, oh, you're not going to try to pick that up, are you? Let me help. You know, you're pregnant, you can't bend down. Oh, let me help. And they're looking to see, how can I serve? And so just like that, our eyes look to the Lord our God to see what his hand is up to. And this is part of what pilgrimage is. It's a journey of you coming to a deeper and deeper realization that the whole point of your life is to serve God. In everything that you do. In all of your paid jobs, and your unpaid jobs, and all the things that you're called to in life, to steward and to commit to and to serve with that we are all together called to understand that everything we do, our education, our studies, again, our friendships, our cooking, our playing, we are called to understand ourselves as servants of God, looking into the hands of our master and mistress. To you I lift up my eyes, he says. That means that in everything you do, if you are a servant of God, we start with, to you I lift up my eyes. We're going to see the contrast here at the end of the psalm, but no, 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 there's all this noise around me. There's all these boss people. There's these rich people. There's these other people. There's all these proud people, and they say I'm so stupid for taking my time to serve God. I'm not getting stuff done. I'm going on this long pilgrimage. What a waste. And all this stuff is happening, but no, no, I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at you. To you, I look up my, lift up my eyes. Not to the boss man. Not to the culture. Not even to my spouse or friends or kids, whether they reward me or curse me, whether they give me a nice tip for a good job or they don't. <laughs> I'm not looking to the market. I'm not even looking to my own wishes necessarily, which constantly change. No, in this life, the daily life of faith and pilgrimage, we are to lift our eyes up to the Lord, to see what he's doing, to see how to please him in all that we do. Just as the eyes of his servants look to the hand of their master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. What signals is God giving us? What needs and opportunities in the world does he express? What is the nature of his economic system, if you will? How does he give out rewards and fatherly discipline? What does it mean to please him, to serve him? 
See, we learn very quickly in life that most of our culture no longer knows that their life is a part of something bigger than them. Can I say that again? Very few people in our Western world have any idea that their life and their life's purpose is meant to be connected to something bigger than their own personal little story that they can craft. Something bigger than them. And not just something bigger like a market economy, but something transcendent, something beautiful and true and good, something more than we could ever think up or build together ourselves as human beings. And so we all live under this sentence of death, if you will, the sentence that any, any moment that can come from the shareholders and from the board that it trickles down and I lose my job and I lose my purpose and I lose my meaning and I lose my apartment and lose my friends and now what? Why would we spend any of those moments taking time to serve someone else, to serve the needs of others if we are constantly in competition with one another and afraid that the rug's gonna get pulled out from us at any second? Why serve? Now, I don't want to paint an overly bad picture of our neighbors and friends. Lots of people serve. Lots of people go to co-ops or community gardens or homeless shelters or soup kitchens, and they find reasons to serve. There are lots of personal answers to that, very personal answers. Some people might say, I serve because it makes me feel good about myself. Or I serve because it comes with its own sort of rewards, people, the kind of people I meet or the kind of acclaim I get or just, you know, again, how it makes me feel. I might serve for how others react to you and say, oh, that's, that's one of those really outward-facing, philanthropic people. Of course, the religious one is often serving out of guilt, you know, or serving out of pride. Maybe they'll notice and think I'm really special and really religious. And then more culturally or even philosophically, there are reasons to serve. The tribal answer, if you will, I'm going to call it tribal we serve because that's how you serve and defend our way of life. We find those who are like-minded and we serve and protect and defend. Or the postmodern answer, we serve in order that we might move up the intersectionality chart and gain more power over our oppressors. The Darwinian, well, we serve to further strengthen our gene pool. The materialist answer is we serve because our chemicals tell us to do so. We can't help it. Or the existentialist Epicurean, well, I serve again because it makes me feel good. But see, the problem with all of these is they fail at major points. Service will always be self-referential with reference to how you feel or what it means to you. Or partial, only serve the like-minded, for example. Or frankly, and you start to learn this a little bit into early midlife if you've done any of this stuff for a time, eventually it just runs out. The steam just runs out. You're like, man, it's too hard to keep serving. Why would you ever serve when it benefits you nothing? When it seems like it's only cost all the time, when it doesn't feel like it's returned? And this question really matters. It really matters because think about it. Why would you serve? If you're a parent, if you are parenting and serving your children for a return on investment, go ahead, I'll wait. Right? And that's not being mean to kids. It's just part of the gig. Why serve when your spouse never seems to understand you and they keep pestering you with the same thing? Why would you serve a project 
or a community or a congregation or a city or strangers or an enemy. All of these can take your service and they can spurn it. So why not just retreat and quit? Why serve when there seems no reason left to serve? And I want to tell you that the fullness of true Christian service, the continuation of our service over time, the way that we can regenerate our energy in serving, all depends on the answer to why we serve. We're called to serve, and so why? I'm going to give you this answer, and we'll pull it out of the text a little bit. We serve because God has revealed himself as love. God is love, and the scriptures tell us that God is love, and we love him back because he first loved us. So he came and loved us first when we didn't love him, and that his love enables us to wake up to his love and love him back. And it says the same thing about his love today, that he continues to love through us. That's it. That's the why. That he loves us, and so we love him back. And then his love moves through us out into the world. He served us first. We see that that is lovely and life-giving, and so we serve him back. And his service goes through us out into the world. And this makes all the difference. Why do Christians serve? What's the deepest motivation? It's not to earn God's love. It's not by work or works. It's not by your effort or your job. Well done. It's not to earn God's love. It's not to earn someone else's love or their esteem. It's not to help us sleep at night and feel good about ourselves. It's not because service seems to be the one last thing that our neighbors actually respect about religious bodies. is oh, they do good for the community. No, Christians serve because God loved us first and serves us. We serve because he came chiefly as a servant to us. He came to serve us with a gratuitous, unearned, free, and beautiful, and life-giving salvation. See, God saves people. He loves them. He serves them not because of any outside force beyond him, but because he wanted to. Of his own heart, he chooses to. And so salvation and love and service and reconciliation, all of these good things initiate in his heart. They originate from God, not from us and from our work or our rolling up our sleeves. Jesus' job, the one he came to do, the one he rolled up his sleeves for, the one he poured out all of his strength and eventually even died doing because he was so committed to doing his mission well, that job was to save you and to save me. And that word save doesn't just mean to forgive your sins, although it includes such a beautiful gift. It's sozo. That's what the word salvation means. It's to take shalom and to work it into your life, to give you all good things. God himself, one another, a renewed humanity, a renewed creation as we work to cultivate it and till it and repair it. He came to sozo you, to shalom you, to save you. Human beings. To bring them back into God's warm and fatherly embrace, his love. And so yes, we have a superior. We have a master and a mistress. We have a boss. And it's one that we are to aim to please. But he is pleased with us by grace, by favor, not by our work. 
He loves us full stop. He's done the good job to completion. Or those last words again, it is finished. Job's well done. I've saved my people. I came to serve them, and I've served them all the way to the end. There's nothing for us to add. And this is where I want you to know that the relational aspect of work, of life, of labor, of serving God, of serving neighbor, the relational aspect here is of utmost importance. Because you don't just meet a master of the universe who you fear and need to serve and hope that he gives you more rewards than curses. Instead, you meet a father who's loved you, who's always approved of all you've done, who all your work at the, at the end of the day, the best of it is just sandcastles in the sand while he plays along building with you and he knows the tide's gonna come take it and yet he wants nothing else but to build a sandcastle with you. If that's the situation you're in, if that's the relationship you have with God, how can you fail? How can you fail? Even when you mess up and knock off one of the spires, well, there's a little more sand and some water and a helping hand to help you make some more. You're at play with the Lord. Did you ever have a job for someone you deeply admired? Deeply wanted to do right by? Man, what an honor. I want to do a good job with this. I told you about my bad job. Maybe you should ask about your best job too. Maybe a mentor or mentee gave you a special opportunity. Maybe you were able to steward a special business or nonprofit that someone else had founded that you respected. Maybe you took care of a special pet or possession or something that someone else had made that they loved. Maybe you've nursed an aging parent. Isn't there something about that relational aspect that suddenly within created a motivation for me that seemed deeper than just getting a paycheck, doing a good job, getting a reputation, moving up the ladder? that really made you want to do well. I want to do well. I want to please this person. I want to do the best job with this thing. I learned how to do that in one of my favorite jobs. I got paid nothing. In fact, I paid money. I worked that contracting job to pay the money to Young Life, uh, this organization in the United States, to go work at one of their summer camp where for 14 hours a day I washed dishes for about 300 campers. That's what I did. I was one of the best jobs I've ever had. You got done and you knew you did a good job or not and you were feeding all these people and you're behind the scenes and it was amazing. I wanted to do well because I could see what God was doing in the life of these campers that came from all sorts of places of faith and non-faith and we knew they were meeting Jesus and meeting the creation and meeting one another and finding this beautiful fellowship and it was such a joy to do the best job I could washing those dishes. And I've learned it in other ways like babysitting or house sitting for generous families and people that we love Honestly, on good days, a pastoring is a lot like this. It's really hard to like not take pastoring seriously because at the end of the day, you are God's sheep and he loves you and he feels responsible to you and for you and you want to do well by you. We love because God first loved us. If we know him as a lover and as a servant to us, then we will want to love and serve him back. Just like those eyes looking to the hand saying, oh, I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to please you. Let's roll up our sleeves together. I love this story of John the Baptist, you may remember, who was the hottest, coolest, amazing thing going on in in the Middle East at this time. Everyone was going out to see what John the Baptist was up to. He was going to be the next sort of rock star of the Messiah kind of world and the prophetic world and all that sort of thing, if you will. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and people are starting to go see Jesus. He's becoming up the ladder and John's going down the chute, if you will. 
And his disciples that are with John say, we've we got to stop this. Everyone's going to Jesus. And he says, man, he's the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. If it's time for me to decrease, that's perfect because it's time for him to increase. I love that perspective. John loved serving Jesus because he longed for God to be loved and for others to know the love of God and to love God back. He saw his own neighbors as Christ's bride. It wasn't, the point of his life wasn't about him. It was about God and Jesus and other people. That was the point of his life. And so, just so, we are to look to God to provide for us, to be the headmistress of our days, to satisfy us and to provide us with what? A paycheck? I mean, I hope so. Jesus says, God knows you need all these things, and trust me, he'll add them to you. But first, most importantly, seek the king and his kingdom. And so the verse, the psalm ends like this. So our eyes will look to the Lord our God for what? Until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Have so much mercy upon us. We've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. We wait on the Lord our God. Like a waiter. And what are we hoping to receive is his mercy. For him to show his mercy and his love to us and to others. To betroth himself to the whole world through us. And of course, there are mention of those who are at ease, those who are contemptuous. The word can be arrogant. And I've mentioned a few times, I love the etymology of the word arrogant. It means ah, roga. It means I have no questions. I know what's up. This is the system we're in. My head's down and my hustle's on. Or I've made a buck. And that's why I've earned that yacht out there in the harbor you know, this is what it is. Those who make their way in the life get to enjoy the spoils, right? But see, instead, we're all meant to hunger and desire for something more, and it involves compassion and humility and connection and service to serve something bigger, for our life to have meaning like John the Baptist did, whether it goes up or down, we know that we're just in service to the Lord. And that means we will also have lots of questions, Rather than arrogant with no questions, we'll have lots of questions in our life's work. In all of your vocations, they might be questions like this. Think about all the things you're responsible for this week, whether you get a paycheck for it or not. What makes you happy, Lord? How can I please you today? In what ways can my paying job or my hobbies be in service to your kingdom how can I morally, more deeply love you in and through my relationships? I know I'm not perfect, but am I doing, I mean, am I doing an okay job? What do you think of me, Lord? How do I better love and serve you and my neighbor? And in closing, I just want to say this. What a dignity. What a dignity that the only purpose of your life, whether you're rich or poor, successful or a failure in your own eyes or the eyes of the world, that whatever you have to do today and this week, even if it's just worship and rest today, whatever you have to do, you get to please the creator of all things in all the things that you do. And that you get to let your whole life serve the Lord and have purpose. That's just a note to you young people who are still trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. 
And that's probably most of us in some ways. You can have all these fears about whether or not you're going to make it or the world's going to end by 2050 or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, if everything you do and whatever time you have has the dignity of pleasing God, you've already won. If we believe that he's fundamentally for us in love and that our purpose in life is just to serve him in whatever way he gives us to serve him, small ways, big ways, whatever it may be, we can have dignity and purpose and meaning, knowing that our lives really and truly matter. And so Christians should be known as those who serve because God is a servant and he loves us. He's made us a servant people so that we'd go up, meet him and extend his love to the ends of the world. We're chosen for this mission. We're never meant to canoodle in the corner with God. We're meant to go out and share his love by serving others, to bear witness to the love of God and to his kingdom. And we will be able, our neighbors will be able to let down their fear if they think we're not just here trying to coerce them into something they don't want to do. We're not here just to compete with them in capitalism. Instead, we are emissaries and beloved servants of God coming to tell them of God's love and his service to them. That's the calling of our church. And so are we allowing the purpose of our life to center in all the things you do, great and small, to center around extending the love of God to your neighbor until he show us mercy, until we see him having mercy on our neighbors and neighborhood and all the things we have our hands in, until he show us mercy, we wait on him. We serve him. We serve our neighbor until Christ has become the bridegroom of all. And can we rejoice at this? Can we delight in this? In hearing the loving voice of our master, who Jesus says will say to all of those who remain his servants until the end, well done, good job. You have been a good and a faithful servant. You've been faithful with the few things I gave you, so now I'm putting you in charge of many things. Come now into your house and share in your master's happiness. These are words of Christ to you, and it's his grace and his love. So let's serve him again today and serve our neighbors in the world this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you.